When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and this week I am continuing my series about people who work in homelessness services. And if you were listening carefully, you, you might have heard a, a slight linguistic change there compared to the last two weeks. I did not say people who work with the homeless. I said people who work in homelessness services. And there's a reason for that, because that was intentional. It's because I got an email this past week from a listener named Maura, and she told me that she actually works in social services in New York City, and she had a little bit of advice for me. Uh, she said, uh, please stop saying the homeless. <laughs> Generally, we are really trying to use first-person language no one likes to be defined by their circumstances. So please try for people who are experiencing homelessness. It's a temporary, fixable problem after all. Um, that seemed completely reasonable to me. And frankly, you know, as I'm going along with these shows, I'm still learning. I'm learning about the field and the people who work in it and the kind of language they use and the things they think about. And so I'm going to try and strive as I record future episodes to stick to that language. Do not say the homeless, but you say people who are experiencing homelessness and kind of construction along those lines. Unfortunately, there are two caveats. First, these next two episodes, including today's, were already recorded by the time I got that email. So I, I couldn't go back and retroactively fix things. I couldn't retcon it. And second, we already titled the series Working with the Homeless. Um, and it's a little tricky to go back and uh, redo that. So we're going to, as a sort of compromise, stick with the title, but in the actual episodes themselves, we're going to watch our language. And with that, let's talk about what we've got on tap for this week. I'm going to be talking with Bonnie Coover. She is a nurse practitioner at Janian Medical Care, and she runs their street medicine team. Essentially, she is a nurse who provides primary care to people experiencing homelessness. She goes and visits them. They sometimes come to her and this conversation was, you know, both a way to learn about the challenges of practicing medicine out on the street, and there's also a way to learn about the kinds of maladies that tend to afflict people who are homeless. One warning ahead of time, this episode does get a little bit graphic at points. I'm not going to describe how, but just be aware of that. If you are easily grossed out, be prepared. There are a few moments things get a little bit graphic. All right. Now that, I hope you enjoy the show. What's your name and what do you do? 
My name is Bonnie Coover. I'm a family nurse practitioner and the director of street medicine at Janian Medical Care. On a day-to-day basis, I see people who either live in the street or live in a safe haven and do primary care for them. I do urgent care, and that's the big picture of what I do. So you're a medical professional who your clients are the homeless for the most part. Yes, yes. Um, I get referred clients to me through um, outreach teams who work with people who are chronically street homeless. They refer people to me to see, and then those are the people who, uh, you know, we start... uh, patient-provider relationship. Yes. And is that all of Janium's clients? No, Janium provides healthcare in a variety of settings. So okay. the street medicine program is just one of the programs. We also have on-site healthcare in temporary and permanent supportive housing sites. So for people who are housed, either, like I said, in a temporary or a permanent place, mm-hmm. there are is like on-site medical care ah, provided see. by Janian. But my portion of it is the people who are currently street homeless, though I do go into the safe haven sometimes if they don't have health care. You know, I'm seeing somebody, they move into a safe haven, they were on the street, and then they move into the safe haven. I'm not going to just stop seeing them. So how many years have, have you been a nurse for? A little bit over three years. Three years. And I've been doing this job for a little bit over three years. Okay, so this is your first nursing job. Yes. This is where you started. But it's a dream job. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's, is nursing a first career or second career, or is it? More like a third or fourth. Or... Third or fourth career. <laughs> yeah. How did you get into being a street medicine nurse? What led you here? Well, when I was graduating, I knew I wanted to serve some underserved population, some population that didn't have the access that other people do have. Mm -hmm. And in school, one of our rotations was in a community clinic in the Bronx. And it was a clinic that happened to serve a lot of people who were either in shelters or like unstably housed, you know, couch surfing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what got me to be like aware and like connected to uh, serving that population And also, like, aware of it as a really specific skill set when you're taking a history from somebody who may have a more chaotic time in life. You know, maybe maybe their brain is a little bit more chaotic sometimes. I'm not saying that for, like, every person who's unstably housed, but it can be a very different way that you even, like, conduct a medical visit. Bedside manner matters a lot, I imagine. Yes. (laughs) Compared to, yeah, you have to, that's, that's like a whole specialization right there. Right. Well, and you have to have more time than you do in a traditional setting. I mean, there are plenty of clinics who yeah. serve people who are unstably housed or in shelters, and they are sort of on a traditional schedule where you have to see a patient every 8 to 15 minutes, you know, in yeah. order just like that's how billing works. That's how you like pay the rent to have a, a clinic open. But that works differently for you guys. Right. Right. We work on a grant and that allows us to spend as much time as we need with each person. Just to be clear, are you seeing people out on the street for the most part? Are you coming to them or are they ever coming to you? About half and half, I would say. You know, some people, when they've developed um, a good good rapport and trust in the outreach team, they'll come to the outreach office because they have a good relationship with their case manager. So maybe I'll see them while they're at the office. And then people who are not really are not really there yet, you know, that they really are at their street location 24-7, then I go to see them. So the street medicine team consists of myself or another nurse practitioner or MD, mm-hmm. and then also one RN. So we will, the outreach team, you know, they have a pretty large uh, client load, 
And then of those people, if they are particularly medically concerned about somebody, either because they don't know what's going on with them or because they maybe had a hospitalization or a known chronic condition, um, then they will, you know, refer them to us for Mm -hmm. sort of like ongoing treatment because we have, you know, like one team that serves all of Manhattan and another team that serves all of Brooklyn and Queens. It's not so much a, you know, emergency, you know, come over here right this second yeah. as a more um, either like a more like a standard primary care visit that you would make or more or maybe like an urgent care visit. You know, sometimes we could get there, you know, in a couple of days. I guess if someone is, is in need of truly urgent care is in an emergency situation, they would hopefully go to an emergency room, right? Hopefully. I mean, that is what the outreach team would tell them to do. Yeah. But depending on the person and where they are in in mm-hmm. life right now, they may or may not go. And depending on what they're dealing with in their life, you know, that really changes, like, the hierarchy of how, how someone orders their needs, you know, might not be the same as if you have a stable place to live. You know, if you leave your spot, you can, you know, you can't, you know, if you have more than, you know, a bag or two, you can't take that with you to the hospital. And if you leave it, that's going to, then it's going to be taken. So, you know, sometimes people are having to choose between getting medical care if they go to a hospital or like losing all of their personal belongings. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's the calculus they have to do. Right. So there might be times where exactly where the team, the outreach team is thinking this person, you know, they seem like they have an infection, you know, they seem like they have pneumonia. They seem, they just seem sick, but, you know, they have other priorities that are going to prevent them from going. So then we'll come out and see them. And a lot of times that is the way we first engage somebody is they have some acute medical need or concern. And then we engage them to see if, you know, if we can treat that, whatever that concern is. And then if they're interested in ongoing primary care, And we try to do, you know, really the highest level of primary care, the same as like you or I would receive. Interesting. So the goal is to treat what's happening right there, Mm -hmm. if it's a flu or whatever whatever it might be. And then it's to create a long-term relationship. That's what you actually, you're hoping to get out of it, is is someone who will then come back and check in. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily my goal to have the long-term relationship because I really try to keep it patient focused and like what is their goal but they should know that if they want primary care like that is something that they can access without having to like lose all their stuff or you know leave their spot for half a day and wait for hours in a clinic you know and at that point once it's a regular relationship is it that you're kind of doing you'll do house calls or i mean that's the wrong term to use here but corner calls i I guess we'll say or is it that at that point they'll start coming in or both. It just depends on the person. Yeah. It depends on the person. It depends on their mobility. Yeah. There can be physical, you know, limitations to how hard, how hard or easy it is for them to travel. Like I said, how much stuff do they have? Um, People who are struggling with addiction, especially when people are really heavy users, they really have to spend all day making money in order to not get sick. So they can't spare a couple of hours to like go see me or anybody in a clinic because they may, you know, go into withdrawal during that time or just, like, lose out on, like, making money and then go into withdrawal later. So typically, what are you getting referred to someone for? What is a normal case? I would say they fit into 
maybe three categories. One category that people get referred to us is just for for age. You know, if somebody is like over 60 and still living on the street, they've passed the like the average age of death for somebody who's on the street. Mm-hmm. So it's just probably good that they have a checkup. So we'll go engage them for that. Um, we get referred people who are, like I said, having an acute problem. A lot of times it's you know, like a breathing problem or a lot of times a skin infection. Skin infection. Yeah, a lot of skin infections, a lot of lower leg wounds. Lower leg wounds, like open cuts, things like that. Um, it's not so much cuts, but unfortunately, when people stay outside, you know, it can be not as safe to sleep lying flat. So, like, you know, when people sleep, say, in the subway or... Penn Station or a more public area, people can choose more public areas because it's more safe as far as, like, you're not going to then be attacked by someone. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, if you're in a more public area, you're more likely to be told that you have to remain sitting up. Okay. Um, And since, you know, humans were meant to sleep lying flat, when you sleep sitting up all the time, your fluids pool in your legs, and people end up with what's called venous insufficiency and chronic venous insufficiency ulcers in their lower legs. Your skin basically just starts to break down from being overstretched for months or years. Oh, wow. Um, and then it's really hard to heal. And so that's one, that's one really common issue. That we get called for. And you said there was a third bucket. Oh, right. So, yeah. So the sort of like age and then like maybe an acute issue like a skin infection or something that, yeah, they're worried about right then. And then the third bucket I would say would be like a chronic condition. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we know this person has diabetes. Uh, Mm -hmm. We know they have hypertension. We know this person has a history of um, heart disease or they've had several hospitalizations. And I would say those are the sort of like three broad categories that people fall into as far as why they're being referred to us. If someone is just older and they're still on the street, you you just told me is that person, the odds are they should be dead at that point. They're past the age where the average age where someone survives at that on the street. I think think the age is 57. 57. I think is the average age of death if you're street homeless. I mean, that's your, if you're in your 60s, you're, you're a lot of danger, right? What is the the move at that point with someone who is still living out on the street? At that? Is it, you know, are you just taking care and hoping that they stay healthy? Or is it there's an urgency to get them into a, a safe haven? What do you do? Well, you know, I mean, the statistics of 57 being the average age of death doesn't mean that any one individual yeah. necessarily is sick. I actually, I have met a handful of 60 and 70 year olds who have been street homeless for literally decades. And uh, I can't find a thing wrong with them. I've met a couple of, ge- of older gentlemen who do a lot of canning. A lot of canning? Yeah. So, you know, where you're like going and you're picking up the recyclables and that's how they make money. Yeah. And that requires a lot of walking. Okay. So uh, <laughs> they're, in better they're sh- these like really fit <laughs> 70-year-olds. <laughs> who would live on, live on the street. Right. I'm just thinking about my own knee problems and the guy <laughs> you're describing to me. I'm in like physical therapy for and the guy you're describing right now could probably outrace me. Potentially. That's great. Potentially. Okay. So, so there are exceptions to this to the rule. Sure. But we just want to be sure and check on anybody who is yeah. over 60 because of the mortality. But the assessment is essentially not different than okay. it is for anybody else as far as like, you know, making sure that they know that they can access our services, letting them know that we can, we're happy to um, see them in an ongoing way for preventative care, you know, vaccinations, yeah. um, health screenings. There's or if they don't want us to come around, they can just tell their case manager if they're feeling 
unwell, yeah. and we'll just come see them. I see. There's no point, though, where you're like, hey, buddy, you're, you're like, you really might want to think about a safe haven at this point. You're kind of chancing it out here. Um, I think that, you know, their case managers are talking to them about housing yeah. all the time. Yeah. And that's not They're really, nudging them. If, that's yeah. not really my role. Um, if somebody has a, to go back to the venous insufficiency ulcers, yeah. that is something, if they have especially a condition that is related to being outside, such as, oh, you have to sleep up and that's why the swelling isn't going away in your legs and we're really going to have a hard time, you know, getting rid of these ulcers unless you're able to sleep flat. Yeah. So um, I do bring it up when it is when their situation is relevant to their health in a direct way. I mean, it, it's always relevant. Yeah. It's always in effect. But, but sometimes but if it's there's something where more you urgent. Can, can say, if you had a bed, this problem might go away. Exactly. You can say it in that context. Exactly. Where, whereas just telling them to go to a shelter is not productive. It sounds like that's kind I of... I don't think so. Yeah, yeah that's sort of... You know, but look, you, you gave me one. I, I initially said that. It's like, that's a <laughs> terrible idea. It's, well, you know, I'm. See, I'd have, the people have been to a shelter have uh, decided they is, don't want to be in a shelter. Right. That's They've made that calculation already. Right. So you telling them isn't necessarily going to help that relationship that you're trying to build with them. Or, right, right. Yeah. I don't like to tell people what they need to do. Yeah. You know, people people know what they need, and it may not be the same choice that I would make, but, you know, you got to give people the, the dignity of knowing what's best for themselves. You know, some people don't want to go inside because they really can't tolerate being around other people. Yeah. You know, that it stresses them out or they feel anxious or, you know, even in a, in a safe haven, which is, you know, typically, from what I hear from people, um, nicer yeah. than the shelters and less stressful than the shelters. But it can still be too much for people. So, you know, you have to just accept that people know what they need. When you do find someone with sort of a, an acute condition like those ulcers, what do you do for that person? Like, what? how are you treating them? Well, for chronic venous stasis ulcers, we really go through details of like when there might be opportunities for them to elevate their legs. There's nothing like getting the swelling to go down and kicking your feet up for venous stasis. So that's one thing that we do is we just, you know, we really talk through somebody like, what is their typical day like? Um, if they can't sleep flat, you know, is there some place where they can be that they can put their feet up at least mm -hmm. for a few hours? And then we do compression, either bandages or stockings. Um, and then we do wound care, like routine, you know, maintenance. And uh, just depending how bad the wounds are, depends on how frequently you do the wound care, you know, it, how much compression. Is wound care like cleaning and stitching or what does that mean? Um, you don't really, you don't tend to like stitch up. A yeah. stasis ulcer. So it's more just uh, like cleaning, making sure it's not getting infected. You know, there are different types of bandages for the specific types of wounds and then compression. As a nurse, you, I mean, you kind of, or any kind of medical practitioner, you have to have a fairly strong tolerance for, for the human body, for some gore. I mean, does it take more if you're working oh, with street homeless, gore. you love gore. <laughs> I yeah. love it. Yeah, <laughs> what was and I, that? Was not the answer. Okay, you love gore. Yeah, I mean, okay. I don't love when bad things happen to people. Okay, but I mean, I find the human body fascinating. That's okay. one of the reasons I went into this. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. What did you do before? You said this is like your fourth career. Well, I originally came to New York to dance. Actually, okay. 
was Which, I was dancing. If Black Swan taught me anything, <laughs> the human body, there's a lot of body horror and dancing too. <laughs> oh God, the feet. Uh, okay, but so you love gore. So you were really born to do this is kind of, so, but you, it doesn't bother you at all. No. Yeah. No, I did. Well, I just find it's really interesting. Yeah. You know, how does the body work? Why, you know, what makes it work well? What, what's going on when there's something going wrong? Well, for, for I guess what I'm asking, for lack of a, a more delicate way to do it, but and, you know, I guess you've only been working out in, with the street homeless population. But, you know, from what you understand, is it grosser, the stuff you encounter, you know, with your patients than what you would ordinarily encounter in, you know, a, a more traditional population? Uh, I, I think so. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, you're describing, Almost like, so. ulcers on legs and wounds and things along those lines are, are, like, a really common thing, you're telling me. Yes. I do think that there is more, quote, gross stuff than you would see in a typical practice. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm asking the real 12-year-old question because, here. Because, <laughs> uh, you know what? Yeah. You, I've had, you know, a fair amount of people who have been dealing with, you know, f- their flesh is rotting off. Yeah. Honestly, um, because of frostbite or because of arterial insufficiency. And, you know, people don't access care in the traditional ways. You know, sometimes people don't always make the same decisions that I think most other people would make. Like in the case of frostbite, you know, most people, if they had a toe that was like, you know, frostbitten, it was dead. It was completely, you know, not coming back. Mm-hmm. Then the recommendation is that you get an amputation for that. But you can do what is called auto amputation, which is that you don't treat it and you wait for the digit to fall off. Is that a common decision that people make? Yes. Yes. It is. Oh. It is. So, um, and in that case, you know, we do a lot of supportive care, you know, make sure that the person knows the signs of infection. You know, I don't know if you've heard of dragging gangrene versus wet gangrene. I I don't know what's, what is the difference? Uh, Well, okay. So dry gangrene would look more like, um, like a mummy, I guess. Okay. A mummy skin. Have you ever seen like a picture of yeah, a mummy? Yeah, I've, 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 I've seen pictures, yes. The like dried out tissue versus yeah. wet gangrene, which would be where you've got the like the blood and the pus and the infection. Mm. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we provide supportive care to try to keep yeah. it on the dry gangrene side of, you know, no infection and, you know, make sure the person is aware of signs of infection, you yeah. know, monitor and make sure that they're not having a... They don't go, you know, like septic where the infection doesn't spread to yeah. like, their blood, the rest of their body. Yeah, I think rotting tissue is, is what we've dealt with the most um, as far as the gore factor. And so that's that's a big concern when you, you find someone with some sort of open wound is keep you from getting worse. Yes. That's always the, like, it could turn into a full-on life-threatening condition if you're not careful. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. And people just don't have, you know, they just don't have... A lot of access to, you know, it's like, do they have fresh water to rinse it off with? You know, I think about the medical decisions I personally make, which are often horrendous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like that. Oh, don't ask me about my yeah, own <laughs> right? Like, And I am a comfortable upper middle class man uh, with a good health care plan. And it would not be hard for me to make better healthcare decisions for myself to treat little things when they come up or sure, deal sure. with injuries before they become chronic. And so when you're dealing with, uh, I guess, for persons on the street, I mean, they have so much more that standing in the way of getting care, they have to make those decisions like, you know, whether or not they leave their belongings behind to go visit you or something like that. Or, I mean, they just, they're doing a totally different set of mental math. You know, it's even harder for them to head off things before they become a real problem. 
Yeah, they can be. They can be. I'm kind of thinking out loud as I'm just contemplating. Like, and I'm finding a lot as I talk to you know people in this field that there are little things that just wouldn't occur to me. That like, oh yeah, that's that becomes a big decision for that person, or that's a thing that you'd have to deal with in a totally different way. Right. One of the first things I remember learning is that some people don't want to have pills on them, even if they have no street value. Just having pills can make you, you know, appear to be a target. Oh, wow. If, like, somebody sees you, like, pulling pills out of your pocket, somebody might want them. You know, they don't know what the pills are, but that could make you a target. Yeah. Um, they don't know it's just Tylenol. Right. Yeah. Or nifedipine for your blood pressure. And that's kind of the third bucket you mentioned, which is chronic illnesses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are the challenges of treating someone for a chronic disease when they don't have a home? Like, how does that change your job as a, as a doctor or as a, as a practitioner? I think that mostly, you know, it has driven us a lot, to, as much as possible toward, you know, long-acting treatments. There's, you know, one weekly patch you can do for blood pressure. Like I said, I wish there were, you know, more options, but there's like, there's one, you know, you can do that. There's, you know, um, a couple of like injections you can do that's like a weekly injection for diabetes. So we really focus on those at least weekly treatments or monthly treatments, you know, because then I can go or the RN can go or one of the other practitioners can go and actually administer that medication weekly. So the person then doesn't have to, you know, keep up with it or, you know, in the case of diabetes medications, Many of them need refrigeration. They don't mm. have to worry about that. Or just, you know, the general difficulty of, like, keeping up with a lot of things. Yeah, keeping track of yeah. taking your medication every day is it's yeah. a little tougher then. Yeah, that said, some people do really well. I have a couple of people who, you know, always take their blood pressure medication on time, always take their seizure medication on time. We help with reminding them to, you know, pick it up or sometimes we go pick it up for them, you know, if people have a hard time traveling or paying for medication. How do they get their meds? Is it covered by Medicaid or how does it work? Most people are connected to Medicaid. The outreach teams, you know, sign anybody up for Medicaid who's eligible. Mm -hmm. And since New York is a Medicaid expansion state, most people are eligible, yeah. which is really great. And then if somebody is not eligible for Medicaid but needs a medication, we'll pay for it. You guys will use your grant money to make sure that person's got their meds. Yeah. What are the most common chronic? Is, is it diabetes? Like, what is what are the things that the, these folks deal with? Some things, it is the same chronic illnesses that every primary care person sees, which is, yes, heart, diabetes, heart stuff, hypertension, heart yeah. disease. Some things that are a little bit different about street medicine— would be more people will die of cancer than yeah. in the general population. I know that cancer is one of the top three things that kill people who are homeless. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly why, yeah. but from my observation, it seems like when I know a person who has cancer, who's, you know, street homeless or unstably housed, it kind of feels like the way people used to talk about cancer, like in the 80s. I don't know exactly how old you are, but I don't know if you remember when it was like cancer, like, yeah. and that just means you're going to die and that's it. And that's how they tend to think about it. And that, yeah, it's like, you know, if somebody has like a lump and they'll tell me, they'll be like, oh, I, I'm afraid I have cancer. And the implication is that I'm afraid I have cancer and therefore the end is near and I should just pack it in enjoy my life while I can, and, and, and also, and I don't want to go somewhere and have somebody tell me I'm going to die. It's too scary. How do, you, how do you 
deal with that situation? What do you do? Well, I try to have conversations with people, you know, and tell them, you know, it's possible that you it could be cancer, it could be not be cancer. You know, I depending on the situation, I give them my best, you know, medical my best guess as far as like this is consistent with cancer or like this is not consistent with cancer. And then, you know, even if it is consistent with cancer, I try to just educate people that, you know, a lot of cancers, if they're caught early, you just cut it out and then you're fine, more yeah. or less. You know, obviously there's like some monitoring. You want to make sure it doesn't come back. But I try to just let people know that, you know, the earlier you go check it out, the more chance that you could just have a surgery or some treatment and have many more years onto your life. It's not necessarily a death sentence. You're there telling them that they shouldn't just quit or they don't have to just quit right now. Well, yeah, just because you you have cancer or you think you have cancer, that yeah. doesn't mean it's all over. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even though that's the perception in that among a lot of homeless folks. From my experience, From people I talk to, yes, that's strongly the idea is that, you know, if you've got a lump and you don't know what it is. Yeah, you're done. Yeah. With conditions like hypertension or diabetes, are, are, are your patients any better or worse, would you say, about keeping up with their treatments than, you know, a normal patient? I don't think so. No, that's that's an area where I would say it feels more similar to really traditional primary care, or at least the primary care that I practiced as a student at the clinic that I was in, where, you know, people don't take their high blood pressure medication because they don't feel bad. You know, yeah. same thing with diabetes. You know, they don't they don't take the medication unless they feel bad. And, and all the work is in, you know, educating people about how, you know, okay, you don't feel bad today, but like in 10 or 20 years, you're going to be on dialysis and it's going to be terrible. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, you're going to, it's your eyesight, you know, down the road. Yeah. So it's the same, that same, same stuff. Very, yeah. That seems very similar. Yeah. It's just people are stubborn and and don't follow instructions, no matter who they are, or how much money they have. Yeah. Well, I think also, I think that, I mean, whatever, this is my theory of like Let's hear in it. health culture in the U.S. at least, is that we have this whole concept of like a sick person and a healthy person. And if you have to take medication every day for the rest of your life, I think there's this conception of like you're therefore a sick person and people don't want to think of themselves as a sick, sick person. person. Yeah. And you know, so they'll do anything to convince themselves that they don't need to take their meds. Right, because they feel fine. Yeah, which they are not, even though they, they feel right. fine. Or but, like you, yeah, it's like you'll feel you'll feel good for a lot longer if you just take them. But What do you carry with you? Like when you're out on a visit, like what's what's your gear? I carry some like really basic diagnostic tools. So, you know, blood pressure cuff, stethoscope, pulse ox for the, you know, oxygen saturation, a thermometer, you know, some really basic things as far as that goes. And then as far as treatment, I carry, you know, a couple of different antibiotics. I carry an inhaler, some wound care supplies, you know, a couple of different antibiotic creams. Yeah, I guess earlier when I said antibiotics, I meant oral. Ah. So, you know, a couple of different forms of antibiotics, some creams, some wound care. So a little bit of medicine, a little bit of basic diagnostic tools, and a little bit of first aid, sort of the the mix that you've got on you. Right. And then if there's anything that, like, somebody needs urgently, and for some reason I'm not going to be able to, like, see them again, or, you know, if there's an urgent situation, like, I will go purchase something. But more often than not, like, that will cover it or 
you know, they have Medicaid and I can prescribe them what they need. Yeah. Or I can see them again the next week and like bring something else. And do you have like a car or is it a van or are you, what, do you, what are you driving around in? Uh, we did recently get a van. You've got a van? Mostly we walk around and take the subway. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So you've got your gear in like a, a big yeah. bag with you? Or? Right. Well, that's in Manhattan. So, okay. you know, there's also our teams in Brooklyn and Queens. They're in cars more just because the boroughs are more spread out. And then we have a medical van that's shared between Manhattan and Brooklyn, Queens. It's a, it's a small thing. It's not like a big Winnebago. It's a, a sprinter. I don't know if you've seen them. Do- They're like delivery do- vans. Yeah. Do- Dodge Sprinter. Is that that? No. no Mercedes. No, Merce- Mercedes, Mercedes Sprinter. Yes, oh, Mercedes okay. Sprinter. Yeah. Um, and we got it, you know tricked out so <laughs> I, I wish i could get spinners on it but they said no that was you asked us <laughs> <laughs> well i think they thought i was kidding <laughs> it arrives i'm sorry this mercedes is not have the rims i requested right yeah it's got the medical bed and like a centrifuge and ekg and like all that <laughs> all that bullshit yeah <laughs> all that medical care Whatever. Stuff for medical care. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we trade off use yeah. of the van, which is really great because you get the privacy. Yeah. I, I, I imagine that's got to be if you're if you're a patient. That's that's one of the few moments of privacy you might get in a day. Like, yeah. Well, Brooklyn and Queens, people have more privacy. Mm-hmm. I think because it is more spread out. Okay. There's more um, bridge underpasses and stuff where the, there's low traffic. I there see. are places like that in Manhattan for sure. But more often, yeah. our clients in Manhattan, yeah, it's like I'm trying to, you know, ask personal medical questions on 34th Street. And, <laughs> you know, and just like everybody else, you get the the anonymity of the massive crowd is the best that you get. <laughs> so It's if you're having your checkup in the middle of Herald Square. Yeah. At least no one's really listening. Sometimes, sometimes. We do have issues, especially like when you earlier when you asked about the gore, when we're doing like wound care and it's... It is more gory. Yeah. People will stop to look like it's a show. Oh, that's... And I'm like, this feels terrible. Yeah. So I try to do the wound care and then also, like, keep my peripheral vision open for, you know, oh, is somebody coming, you know, somebody trying to just get, like, a free entertainment for the afternoon so that I can stop and Nobody... try to get them to move along because I feel like that's kind of gonna... rude. I'm going to ask a question that's kind of like... My faith in humanity might actually depend on your answer here, but <laughs> has anyone ever tried to like snap a picture of it or like, well, have you ever seen someone like trying to take a pic? I don't know that I would let anybody linger long enough okay. to take a picture. Okay. Yeah. I was just like wondering like that, because when you're saying like people are rubbernecking, that was what I was picturing oh. for a second. I was like, that would be, that's my faith in humanity just collapsing right there. Oh. But No, thankfully I haven't seen that. Okay. Usually people just want to like stop. And like watch. And you're like, you're watching someone's checkup here or like watching someone like have a very intimate like. Right. <laughs> thing, yeah. Right. Thing here. Yeah. Sometimes it does go the other way, though. Sometimes people stop, especially when you have somebody who is in a location for a long time mm-hmm. where there are community members that know them. Oh, okay. Sometimes people will stop to like make sure that we're not hassling the person, that's which good. is really nice. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that it's like they have out. people like looking out for them and then the, you know, the person that the client that we're talking to will say you know no no it's fine i'm good i'm good you know yeah and i'm like oh that's great that's great how many people do you typically see in a day it really depends uh we usually put seven or eight people on the schedule and then sometimes you find everybody and sometimes you find nobody really rarely do we find nobody but you know usually there'll be a mix of like some people who are supposed to come in some people that we go out in the field to find uh, but it really really depends 
Yeah, I just realized like they may not be where you expect them to be on a given day or... Right. But and sometimes you roll snake guys. Sometimes you get nobody in a day. Yeah. Rare, rarely do we get nobody, but yeah. but occasionally. And also, like, usually we have backups, you know, where it's like, well, you know, you plan a route where you're like, well, we'll go see this person. And if they're not there, there's this other person a couple blocks over, you know. You, you always plan a lot of, like, backup people. You need to be pretty flexible. You need to be very flexible. <laughs> do people always show up for their appointments when they come to you or? Do they always Are they, are they good about showing up to their appointments, I should ask? Um... Some are, some aren't. It really, it depends on the person and what's going on. And usually, you know, the day before there'll be like a last minute person or two thrown on the schedule who's maybe having like a crisis or, you know, particularly maybe outreach went by and saw a, like a really gnarly wound. Yeah. <laughs> and they just want us to go check it out. Get over to Bonnie quick. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. At one point, you mentioned um, that Taking medical history can be a little bit tricky, especially if someone was, I assume, a mental health issue or you said kind of a little bit more disorganized. Mm -hmm. How is it different? How do you go about it? Well, always my priority is the relationship with the person, especially if somebody may have schizophrenia or other like serious mental health issues. That means to me that they may in particular have had bad medical experiences in the past. So I always want to you know, I try to pay attention to how somebody responds to the questions. And if it takes, you know, over the course of several visits to get a complete medical history, that's usually actually more how it works. I see. Versus getting it all, you know, in a first visit, certainly not, yeah. uh, or a second. So you're collecting info over time as you get to know them. Right, right. Yeah. And I think what can be difficult of taking a medical history when somebody is somewhat disorganized mentally is that, you know, they tell you things and it's hard to tell what what happened and what did not happen or when it happened maybe. And so it's sort of like, you know, you look for you look for clues. I mean, honestly, it can also be really difficult sometimes figuring out what's going on with somebody in that moment. Yeah. Some people who not everyone, but some people who experience schizophrenia have a hard time feeling their own bodies. In particular, some people seem to be uh, really insensitive to pain. Oh, wow. So looking for, you know, asking questions about people's, you know, uh, behavior can give you, like, uh, I, I knew a gentleman who had, like, a chronic pancreatitis. He didn't ever seem to experience any pain. So I really focused on, you know, and asking him about, like, well, like, have you thrown up? You yeah. Know, something that a little bit more, like, concrete. 
Or um, I knew another gentleman who, you know, had had several of his toes amputated because of frostbite. And um, when I, you know, was really talking to him about the details, I was trying to get him to, you know, let me see his feet so I could see if he was getting any more frostbite. And he was telling me that his feet felt fine. You know, normally you would have considerable pain with frostbite, but because I knew that he had, uh, was fairly, you know, disorganized, I asked him about, you know, when he had frostbite previously, you know, well, what did that feel like? And he said, oh, it felt fine. I didn't feel anything. And I said, what about amputation? He was like, no, it was fine. I didn't need any pain medication. And I talked about, you know, well, what did your toes look like? Because he was telling me when the doctor said, oh, see, all of these toes, like they needed these like six or eight toes need to be amputated. And I said, well, what did they look like to you? And he said, they looked fine to me. They looked like normal foot skin was what he said. At that point, what did you do? Well, I just worked on like building the trust in our relationship. Until finally he'd let you check. Right. And he did eventually. Actually, for him, even though he had been outside for a very long time, he actually ended up going into a safe haven. Oh. And the safe haven was connected with like a medical service. And he let the either a nurse or a doctor there see his feet. Finally. So I was like, great. Somebody saw his feet. (laughs) (laughs) Someone saw him. My months long project, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. When you're treating someone with schizophrenia or another mental illness, are you ever worried about them potentially getting violent? Are there any safety precautions you have to take? I mean, we take we take some safety precautions with all of our clients. You mm-hmm. know, like I said, we are referred people through the outreach team, and we always ask if the person has a history of violence or is at risk for violence for any reason. And if they're in a secluded place, we always have somebody go with us. But for the most part, I see most of my clients on my own. And most people are not violent. I think there's a, I don't know if it's come from movies or what, but it seems like people equate schizophrenia with violence. Yeah. Um, And I know certainly some people who are schizophrenic are violent, but plenty of people who are not schizophrenic are violent too. Yeah. Uh, But no, but the vast majority of people, schizophrenic or otherwise, no, there's no concern for violence. But we always, you know, we ask if there is any history. Do a lot of your patients have drug use issues, would you say? Yes. Yes. I see a fair amount of people who either deal with heroin use or um, alcohol use. Usually it's not just uh, substance use on its own. It's usually coupled Mm -hmm. with uh, PTSD or other like severe early trauma. How does that change, you know, your care program for them? What happens at that point if you know if you know someone's, for instance, injecting heroin? Um, Well, someone's injecting heroin. One of the things that I always try to do is, you know, establish that, like, establish the relationship, the trust that, like, I'm not going to, like, judge them for anything that they are doing in their life. And that my goal is to, you know, provide resources that they can be as healthy as possible. So now if that is they want to get on into treatment in a methadone program, or if I can prescribe Suboxone for them, then of course I want to do that. And if they're not interested or they're not ready to do that, then I want to make sure that they're connected to a clean needle exchange program, that they know about like using alcohol swabs before they inject so that they don't, you know, end up with endocarditis or cellulitis. So it does change. It I think it helps me ask better questions. It helps me be more mindful about like what they may need. You're doing a lot of harm mitigation as well as or harm giving, reduction. Yeah. Harm reduction. Yeah. How often would you say they they take you up on the offer to try and 
go to a clinic versus taking your advice on clean needles or how often do they just ignore it altogether? So far, in my experience, everybody who has been at least addicted to opioids has eventually been interested in treatment. Yeah. Or they are interested in treatment, but they're like not quite ready. So it's more a, men- a matter of when than if. And people, yeah, people, I mean, people are, I think sometimes they're, you know, they're just a little bit secretive because they're afraid of being judged. And it comes back to establishing trust, like you said. Right. But most people are interested in, yeah, in like clean needles and, you know, those sorts of things, which there are a lot of good programs in Manhattan, not yeah. quite as many in Brooklyn and Queens. What is the part of your job you enjoy most other than the gore? um talking to people just like getting to know people i think that people who are experiencing homelessness you know i mean everybody sees somebody who at least appears to be homeless on a pretty regular basis and it's i don't know it's like it's a whole other world that's happening it's a, a whole other community i guess you know some people wonder what it's like to go to the Met Ball and be part of that community. And I want, I've always wondered, like, what is it like? Yeah. You know, what is that that community like? And and I love talking to people. So I yeah. think that's my other favorite part. What would you say is the hardest thing about your job? I think the hardest thing about my job is when you feel like you get really, really close to helping somebody and for some reason or another you just have that that bare miss you know yeah uh is there someone in particular you're thinking of or yeah yeah i just there was just a a, a gentleman he actually just passed away on saturday and we almost got him into treatment for a treatable cancer yeah it was a, he had a treatable cancer and he, you know, originally was very much thinking that, oh, I've, I've got cancer. That's it for me. And um, he, but he was open to treatment. He was, you know, he was like, we'd go to some appointments, miss some appointments. Yeah. It was in his, it was in his throat. And it, it ended up, I, I don't know. I think if he, he would have. I think if he would have just gone to like a couple more appointments a little bit earlier, there's very real possibility that he could have had had it treated and lived another 20 years. But because I think of that, for whatever reason, the like really pervasive fatalistic ideas about cancer among that community, he was ambivalent about it because he kind of thought he was already dead and it, it made it come true. Uh, I got had a CT scan from him like maybe like just six weeks ago that showed that it hadn't metastasized at all. So it was still like localized to one spot. I could have gotten it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that's kind of a. No, no, that's. I asked. <laughs> but when you win, you win big. When you win, you win big. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you get to like save lives and save people's legs and. Yeah. You know, because otherwise they weren't going to get treated for that thing. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Bonnie, thank you for coming in here and sharing all that. It was nice to meet you.
That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please, please, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. And if you have questions, comments, thoughts, little corrections for me like Maura did, send me an email at workingatslate.com. Like I said, I'd love to hear from y'all. Again, that is workingatslate.com. As always, Working is produced by Jessamyn Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. My name is Jordan Weissman. Catch us next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.